here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment in our new format and today we have something quite different happening which is very very exciting. So we listened to your feedback and you said that you would like to submit queries for agents who specialize in genres that Carly and Cece don't deal in. And so we have sourced the most amazing agents to come onto the podcast as guests to read the query letters and opening pages that were submitted via the website to a guest agent. And our first guest agent this morning to kick us off with this new format is the amazing Emmy Nordstrom Higdon, who is a literary agent at Westwood Creative Artists. Welcome, Emmy. <laughs> Good morning. You've made me shy now. <laughs> Don't be shy because Carly and Cece definitely are. <laughs> 
And so, you know, we're potty mouths on this podcast, so it's perfectly fine <laughs> if, you, if you let the curse words fly. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> so, Emmy, why don't you tell us for listeners who would potentially like to query you after this episode, what is on your manuscript wish list at the moment? Well, I have a full manuscript wish list online that people can always check out. It's super detailed, like probably too detailed, um, but I do represent across age categories and genres. So I'm always open to like a wide variety of genres and and different ideas. I love books that make me, I feel like I've told people recently that I love books that make me sit there and look at the screen and go, what? <laughs> but that are actually like super interesting and brilliant. So I always prioritize um, diverse voices. I'm always looking for uh, people who are LGBTQ, two-spirit, Indigenous, BIPOC, disabled, chronically ill, any of those kind of identities fall really well into the kinds of things I specialize in. But I'm always happy to hear from people who are maybe unrepresented in publishing. I have been searching for the perfect YA thriller since I started agenting and I've never been able to land it. So I'm always looking for that. I am super into high concept rom-coms. I love them. I have a lot of dark gritty books on my list. So it's nice to have like, a, I always joke that my rom-com authors are like my cupcakes. Like I get to go to them when uh, I've read a few too many dark things. I love... Let me think. I love like wholesome, but quirky is something I really love. I love murder. <laughs> I love thrillers. Um, and I've been really looking for um, crime novel. I would love a crime novel that's set in like not a white suburban community. I would love to see like a twist on a crime novel. I think that would be really exciting. So I always comp to like S.A. Crosby does great work like that. And Alyssa Cole's new domestic thriller is fantastic too. So anyway, those are just some ideas. I'm always looking for weird new things that surprise me though. So I'm always open. Wonderful. Yeah. And Razorblade Tears was absolutely phenomenal. So mm-hmm. yeah, all those books I want to read when you finally <laughs> present them and get them published. I will do my best. <laughs> so just for our listeners, Emmy, I submitted a whole bunch of the queries mm-hmm. that we got through to Emmy, who then looked at them and decided which ones are they were going to discuss on the podcast today. Could you give our listeners an overview of some of those genres that I submitted to you for consideration? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that I tend to lean a little bit more commercial than Cece and Carly do in my taste and in terms of genre too. So they both have fantastic, especially Cece's literary taste, I know is like (laughs) very high standard. Like them, I really love line level writing. That's really, really good. But in terms of the genres that we were looking at, it was more like, I want to say like lots of YA. There's always lots of YA in my slush pile too. It's an extremely competitive genre. I mean, age category more than genre, I guess, but um, there's always lots of folks who are like eager to get into that age category, which is awesome. Rom-com and like lots of different speculative, like sci-fi fantasy, that kind of stuff. I don't typically do epic fantasy. So I know there were a few who were looking for that in there. And unfortunately I'm not the best read in that genre, so I can't take those on. But, but yeah, it was a real range, which was awesome. It's so nice to see that people People are really into genre these days because I think readers are in those genres are so enthusiastic. So it's cool to see authors that are excited about them too. Yeah, totally. And and for those of you who did submit epic fantasy, if it wasn't for Emmy, don't worry. It's not that you've lost your chance. We will find other agents who do represent epic fantasy and will submit your submissions to them for consideration as well. Right. Totally. So let us, I normally dive right in, Emmy. I've developed yeah. a bit of a reputation for being a diver. <laughs> Let's is, do it. Which is hilarious because when I dive, our belly flop. So we're going to mix <laughs> it up. And today we're, we're going to uh, mosey on in. 
Emmy has chosen three of the query letters and submissions that they're going to discuss today. Let us begin with the first one. Will you read it first? Yeah, so this one is from, and I apologize, I didn't look up the pronunciations of the names, but I think that this one is from L. Livingston. It's for a book that's called I'm Not Done. So here's the query letter. It says, I've learned so much from the content and query critiques you've generously aired on the shit no one tells you about writing. Thank you in advance for your time and thoughtful feedback about my query and sample from my standalone contemporary romance novel. A feminist workplace romance with plenty of steam, heart, and family secrets, I'm Not Done is complete at 81,000 words and will appeal to fans of Alexis Daria and Sally Thorne. Washington, D.C.'s art world is filled with glamorous exhibits, dazzling parties, and social soirees for carefully curated nonprofits. Mo Elizabeth Cadney, a fine arts agent at a Blue Blood gallery, wants nothing more than to be accepted by the socialites that run this world so that she can work with the artists she admires. Her fake name and demure demeanor accomplish just that. She's able to do the work she loves as long as she hides her dark past and curbs her spirit until she is innocuous and unmemorable. But when Casper Henry, an established sculptor looking for new representation, sees her shooting whiskey and dancing to punk rock at a grunge bar, the jig is up on her contrived persona. Casper and Mo make a deal. They go on a date, she represents his newest show, and he keeps her secret identity from her boss and her clients. As Cass and Mo navigate their growing attraction alongside the power dynamics at the gallery and in high society, Mo has to decide if she'll embrace her authentic self and create her own fulfilling path in the world or continue to kowtow to the world that looks down on her. A member of Romance Writers of America, I studied art history and women's studies in college. I spend my days working in tech and my nights cuddling with my dog and writing novels. I'm Not Done is my debut novel and I am hard at work outlining my next project. Thank you for your consideration. Wonderful. So, Emmy, what are your thoughts on the content of the query letter? After which, we'll ask you to give us a bit of an overview of those opening pages, what they contain, and your take on those as well. Yeah, definitely. So this one, she included chapter one of the book, which I think is a really good starting point. I feel like I had a bit of a conversation with you, uh, Bianca, before the show, because I feel like sometimes critiquing opening pages is hard in terms of, I never know whether people want to know whether they're good opening pages for a query or whether they're good opening pages in general, if that makes sense. But sometimes I get queries where people don't send the first chapter. And I think that sometimes that can be a little bit tricky. So I'm always glad when the query is like the the actual opening pages of the book. I also have mixed feelings about prologues because I'm not a huge fan of prologues as a reader or as an editor. And so I often skip them when I'm reading real published books. Uh, sorry, not sorry. We, <laughs> and have so, this, we have this discussion all the time on the podcast. Yeah. And people are like, what is your problem with prologues? Why are you so anti-prologue? <laughs> And we say time and again, it's not that we anti-prologue. We anti-prologues mm. that are tacked on as a band-aid to fix an opening chapter exactly. that's not doing the work it should be doing. Yeah, and I always worry when people send me a prologue that that's, you know, because I think that editors, when I go on submission, but also for agents, when you're reading a query, one of the things my brain is like doing, whether I like it to or not, is trying to figure out whether this book is going to be a lot of work to get ready to go on submission or to be acquired or whatever. And so, you know, you want to know kind of what kind of time investment you're looking at in terms of like, am I going to be able to submit this in three months? Like, is it going to be super quick and turn around super fast? Or am I going to take like a year and a half to get this book ready? And I apologize, someone's mowing outside of my house. So if you can hear background noise. But yeah, so 
with when people send me prologues, I do kind of like wonder if it's a structural issue with the novel. They couldn't maybe shoehorn in some information that they think is really necessary to their story. So I'm always glad when I get the actual first pages. Also because when it goes on submission, that's what the editor is going to see first too. So I feel like it's sort of a realistic like experience in terms of what I would be sending out if we were to take the book on submission together too. So I always think right. that's a good start. Right. Um, and, our, and our listeners know that, you know, agents have got very limited time yes. that they <laughs> look at a ton of submissions all at once. And so their five pages is pretty much, if that's not going to grab the agent's attention, then their query is going to be rejected. So they, they're yeah. pretty much wanting to know, are those opening pages enough to grab an agent's attention? Yeah. And honestly, I mean, I don't mean to be like the Debbie Downer of the group, but for me, it's often comes down to like the first page. It's not even on our website. I think that at Westwood, we ask for 20 pages or something like that. But I feel like for me, when I read the first page, it gives me a good sense of kind of where, what the author's handle is on storytelling, because it's so, I know that authors know that first page is so pivotal. And then it also gives me a sense of their line level writing, which is like the next most important thing, obviously, when you're considering a query. But when I keep reading, then I almost want the full already, if that makes sense. Like the pages beyond the first like two or three, I'm sort of like, okay, now I want the whole thing. <laughs> so I don't know if like, that's not everybody's experience for sure. But I think my attention span when I'm going through a stack of like sometimes 50 queries at a time, I'm not going to read 20 pages of everybody, if that makes sense. So I'm really only going to keep reading if I'm like, do I want this whole book or not? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's have a look yeah. at Elle's submission. What was your take on that? Yeah, so the query letter, this query letter, I actually thought was quite strong. Um, I didn't have like a ton of critical feedback. So the things that I look for when I'm reading a query letter, myself personally, I really like the standard format because we do read so many of them that, you know, they really if they're not in that sort of standard three paragraph format, I find it really hard to get through them quickly. And that's like a big part of my day. So generally I'm looking for a first paragraph that has like all the important information up front, especially looking for the genre of the book, the word count and comps. The second paragraph, which is like ideally just one paragraph. I feel like authors struggle with this and I'm so sorry because I know it's hard, but like telling it, it should tell me everything I kind of need to know about the book. So especially the main character, the conflict, stakes, plot, like all those important building blocks should be in there. And then the last paragraph should be kind of a writing bio. I feel like sometimes a personal factor too is nice, but you don't want to be too extensive. So I actually thought that Elle did a great job in her letter. The sort of the building blocks of the books, I, I wrote that in my comments that it was a great summary, but it could be like a little bit more economical. I feel like there's a lot of extra words in there and I don't doubt people's writing. Like I always start off with good intentions when I'm reading a query. I never go in thinking like, oh God, you're this is going to be terrible. So I feel like sometimes authors feel like they really need to like prove or show off that they can really write in those couple of paragraphs when actually I'm just looking for kind of, you know, like clean grammar, good writing, understandable, and gives me the gist of what your book is about. So I, f I felt like it could be trimmed a little bit. But other than that, the one critique I will say is that the comps are very general. So what she's written here is that her book will appeal to fans of Alexis Daria and Sally Thorne. And for me, I kind of want to know why 
when people say things like that. So just give me like a couple of words of like, is there a specific title of theirs that, you know, your book is most like, or like, is it going to appeal to, you know, like my sense of humor if I like reading X author, or is it your style of writing like that person? Or like, why are you giving me that comp? Who, what does that mean to you? And bonus points, because editors, one of the first things they'll do when they look at your comps is whether or not those books sold well. That's like an unfortunate marketing issue in the industry, I feel like. So bonus points if you have at least one that's like really successful and well-known, but without being kind of like a Harry Potter or a Dan Brown or a Jillian Flynn. (laughs) So I feel like that's what I would sort of add to this letter is to kind of tighten up this middle section that's sort of giving me an idea of the story because I think it sounds great. The concept is clear. Um, I get a good sense of like, you know, romance has a lot of conventions. I feel like she's following them here. And then, yeah, if if we could get like slightly more specific comps, I think that this would be like a really tight letter. Awesome. All right. Yeah. So in terms of those opening pages, can you give the listeners an overview of what happens in them before you critique them? Yeah, of course. So I didn't go into a huge amount of detail critiquing the opening pages because at least in this sample, like the writing is really, really clean. I think for romance in particular, and maybe this is like a genre thing in general, actually, when I'm looking at something that's not just general fiction or that's uh, literary, that's like leaning more, I'm looking for something that's like looking at something that's leaning more on the commercial side or genre side. There are conventions that I'm always looking for. And one of those is usually the writing style, like the voice, the authorial voice of the author. So if you've read like a lot of I mean, this is a rom-com query or like a standalone romance query. When I say rom-com, I use that pretty broadly. But I mean, a lot of the books that are in that genre right now have like a very voicey kind of confessional. It sort of reminds me of like the grown-up version of what YA is doing with a lot of their books these days. But it's very accessible. It's very like, it feels like you have a friend talking to you, telling you the story, right? It's not something that's super, super flowery. There's usually a lot of like nice lush detail because I feel like romance readers love, you know, like details about the clothes and the food and the setting. I mean, who doesn't, especially during COVID, I feel like (laughs) these details have become really luxurious for a lot of us. And this, the writing sample does that really well in this one. Um, So that's one of the big things I look for in romance because a lot of romance is pretty formulaic in terms of how the plot will sort of unfold. And so the way that it's executed is like extra important to me. So yeah, I think that this author has done that really, really well. I think that her sample does a really good job of sort of introducing people to the point of view. That's one thing that I look for, especially in romance, but I would say in especially any book that is going to do dual point of view or multi point of view, like that can be a really tricky thing to pull off in a writing style or in a writing sample. But this one has done that really, really nicely. I get a good sense of the main character and kind of what she's about, which is cool. And I always look for in the first page, sort of like, I want to know everything about the book on the first page when it's a commercial book. So I'm looking for like a sense of the main character. I'm looking for the conflict of the story and I'm looking for the stakes. So like what kinds of things will help the main character get there or not get there. And I want to know that like all super upfront, like most authors, I think that this author has done a good job of starting that. I get a good sense of the main character and I get a good sense of sort of some of the conflict. Like we see right off the bat that there's this secret identity thing happening, but I'd like to see more clearly like what the central conflict of the book would be and what sort of is up for like what, what's what it revolves around. So the stakes and what they mean to the character could be strengthened in there. And I think that's a pretty common issue to have in the first couple of pages. It does take a lot of work to get all of that in such a short amount of space. Yeah. Perfect. Wonderful. Alrighty. So let's move to the second query letter. 
Perfect. So the second one, the second one is a little bit longer. And that's one of the things that the author asked for help on. So what I'll do is read the original letter. um, And with the caveat that one of the things I did like on paper for this one is go through and just chop stuff because the author sort of said that in the, in the opening paragraph she wrote, she's struggling to condense her query, barely has room for this sentence and would love tips on how to do so. So the best way I know how to do that is to go through and just chop things that I feel are superfluous. So I did that. Awesome, Emmy. And just for our listeners, remember that we're making additional content available to our Kofi supporters. So those of you who are our monthly supporters will see these letters and these opening pages, um, including uh, Emmy's comments throughout and what has been slashed, etc. And there will be You learn so much by looking at how a piece of writing is edited. And then for our once-off supporters, there'll be additional content as well. So if you're curious about that, Kofi is the place to go for that. Okay. Perfect. And I will say that, especially with query letters, one thing that I, I mean, this is obviously still a draft and I think it's great that the author is looking for that feedback because one of the things that I always feel is that if the query letter is really wordy, chances are going to be good that the book is going to be really wordy too. And in general, if you feel like you're struggling to kind of like condense and uh, economize in your query letter, you're probably also struggling with that in your book. (laughs) So something, just something to think about. (laughs) So, okay, I'll try and read the original here through my edits. So it says, We Are Paragon, Sin and Shadow is a multi-POV, own voices, sci-fi horror, complete at 110,000 words and told from three first-person points of view. Papa, an amoral intergalactic being, David, an asexual man, and Hayden, a biracial pansexual woman. Hayden was raised to believe her mother ran a cult, but what happened in the barn behind their house was much more sinister. It is a mill, one in a line of dozens of human trafficking sites where only the cerebrally sound survives exposure to two deadly elements, sin and shadow. At 14, David narrowly survived his exposure in the barn, only five days after Hayden's birth. Forced to abandon her and living in isolation since, he struggles to control the violent smoke-like shadow who now pushes from his body at any strong emotion. During his 24-year seclusion, David heard stories about the judges of Wren who brought their life force sin to Earth to create a hybrid human. If even one human could wield both sin and shadow it creates during exposure, they could end the intergalactic war between the two races. They found her. Shattering the illusion Hayden grew up with and breaking the meditative monotony David lived, the estranged niece and uncle are reunited in the barn, where they discover that Hayden is the first and only hybrid. However, having suffered abuse at the mill and learning just how many others are still trafficked, it's not the judge's war Hayden cares about, but seeking revenge against those who steal innocence from others. As they learn to control their shadows and the sin which allows Hayden to read people's memories, the pair set out to destroy mills and find that this disassembly only scratches the surface. The creator, who divides humans and judges to separate planets to maintain pure racial divides is the epicenter of this eugenic war. But in order to face him, Hayden must gain a third power, hollow, by consuming Papa's raw flesh. Papa is more than willing to oblige, impatiently awaiting for her to find him, although he's always been much closer than she realized. I am a disabled veteran who worked as a redacted in the Navy, and I mind my life with redacted for this novel. I beta read regularly for writer friends and am in a writing group facilitated by Bianca. I currently live in town with my plot hound Lucas and Chihuahua Pug little bear who nap under my desk as I type type away. Can I just say I love people who insert their pets into their query letters. That makes me happy. Yeah, Carly and CC are always all about the pets. Yes. As am I, so our <laughs> listeners know it by now. But yeah, yep. 
That is a cumbersome query letter because yeah, there is there's so a much lot. world building yes. and everything in there. So, and and I sympathize with authors who have to write a query letter for you know science fiction or for fantasy. Totally. Ton of world building. It's tough. So, mm-hmm. how much of that were you able to cut, Emmy? A lot of it. <laughs> so for me, I mean, I generally speaking, I I don't think that we need all the world building like in the query letter itself. I think that I mean, it's great when you can like insert a few little details to kind of give a sense like obviously we need to know that there's an intergalactic war happening like that's an important detail (laughs) sort of like time period is this like are we meant to be picturing like you know something that's contemporary or something that's in like a steampunk history like those things are very different right so something about kind of the setting and the time period but the fact that like you know this is taking place like behind the main character's house and that there's like some pretty advanced technology happening here like that's a good I feel like that's all we really need in here to know kind of what's going on. So yeah, I did a lot of chopping around the details, I would say. So things like having, for example, I cut out a lot about David's story because all we really need to know is that he and Hayden found each other and that they realized like her true identity or Hayden's true identity. I don't think there are pronouns in there. And that, you know, Hayden is more interested in revenge than in the war. Like those are really the main plot points, I think, between the two of them. And so the fact that, you know, he has this like 24 year seclusion background and that like he grew up in a really like meditative monotony like all of that stuff is really good for the book but it doesn't need to be in the query letter I don't need to know like his whole backstory right from the start so generally speaking like I would say that for the writing sample and also for the query it's most important to kind of jump in right where the action is so I think that that's really what's missing in this letter is that we're getting a lot of background when like you can save that for the book I don't need that for the query letter for the most part um, and, and even there you know when you're saving it for the book it's yeah the book develops it's not in the opening pages we don't want all the context and backstory in the opening pages we want to exactly. be immersed in this world and we want to learn about this world organically as the as the characters are you know doing things in this world as things are happening to them we will learn the rules of this world we don't need it like boom all this block of information and here's all the no. information <laughs> exactly it's a really tricky thing to do like it's i think one of the hardest things about writing in especially speculative genres is to give hints as the, to the world that we live in in this story like as we go so that it feels like something like we're learning and we're seeing for the first time maybe but not that we're sitting and reading a textbook about this world you've created right like nobody wants that we don't want that with I think it happens in historical fiction sometimes too like nobody wants to feel like they're in history class when they're reading a book whether it's for an imagined world or a real one some people really like that like the really encyclopedic like really detailed world building I think that though for a lot of contemporary books that's becoming you know it really takes a high level of skill to integrate that into your storytelling in a way that's compelling to readers and just on that you know I never used to write speculative fiction and Hmm. suddenly my last two things that I've written my um, audible original that's coming out next year is dystopian fiction we pitched it as the handmaid's tale meets minority report and uh, and then after that I've got contemporary fantasy with sort of 80 year old modern day witches and so in writing this I really felt for writers who work in the genre because only in doing it did I realize actually how incredibly tough it was it's and, so tough. You know, I'm a more experienced writer so you think oh it would be easy but the, the genre is tough yeah and I think that you know a lot of the stuff that we or at least that I grew up reading you know like the sci-fi kind of classics I grew up in the 90s so like we were reading I mean 
as obviously like the Lord of the Rings movies came out, I think a lot of people read those. I think a lot of people read like other epic fantasy because of that. But even aside from that, like a lot of the genre stuff I grew up reading was very like now we would consider it to be out of date, you know? So it did have like long monologues of, you know, like lore from the realm and (laughs) different things like that. I feel like these days, like we don't really want that. We want to see writers doing something more skillful. We still want that information, but we want it to come out in the actions of the characters and not so much like just be handed to us. So I think that that expectation has gotten higher. (laughs) Our attention span now as readers is greatly reduced. Remember that when Lord of the Rings was coming out, you know, there was not tons of television and all kinds of things competing for that attention. So people loved having this big, thick book that was going to get them through, you know, months of of reading. And nowadays that's just not viable and it's not something that most people want. I'm sure there's a niche market, but certainly... Um, I know that when my husband and I got together, we kind of forced each other to read our favorite books. And uh, his was Lord of the Rings. And I must be honest, when I got halfway through, I was just like, can these people not get bloody horses? If they had horses. Right? So much walking in the forest. <laughs> I was just like, all this bloody walking is doing my head in. We don't need this stuff. Like, get them there faster. Get a damn horse. Yep. Just get your ass to where you need to be and let's see things happen. Yes. Okay, so what did you think of the opening pages? So the sample I felt similarly about. I think that the author has, so first of all, okay, a couple of things. One, the author is really missing out on some opportunities for shorthand in this query letter. And I think that that's part of what's tripping them up. So they didn't give a really clear genre. I think that they sort of said it's an own voices sci-fi horror. So first of all, we're not really using own voices anymore. That's like a fairly recent development. So Google that. That's not like the author's fault at all. This was probably written before all of that even happened. But tell us like what you mean by that in the query letter. But also when you say sci-fi horror, like that is so broad. (laughs) There's so much sci-fi out there. There's so much horror out there. What do you mean? (laughs) So really like the, I feel like giving the genre is like shorthand for like what you can expect when you start reading this book, right? Especially when you're in like a more specific category. So sci-fi horror is like one of those where, you know, like it can mean so many different things. So you really want to narrow it to like as specific as you can possibly be. The other thing is that they don't give any comps in this letter and comps are like a fantastic way to be like, this is what you can expect when you start reading these pages. I really miss that when authors don't give any kind of comps. I don't really care what kinds of comps people give, to be honest, even if it's like music, TV, movies, I'm like, whatever, as long as like you're giving me a sense of like when you say it was the minor report crossed with crossed with Edmonton. Yeah. So like that immediately I'm like, Oh yeah. I like, I, I don't even know if I've seen the whole minority report movie, but like, I know the ethos I've read the handmaid's tale. I'm like, yes, I know exactly what you're getting at there, you know? And so whatever it is, like, it doesn't matter to me as long as I'm like, Oh, okay. Like, yes, I understand where your you know, where your inspiration is, what kind of vibe you're going for with this. And so that could really have cut out a lot of words, I think in here too. The other thing is that I, I assume that this author is debut because they haven't said anything to indicate otherwise. And holy cow, a multi-POV genre book is like, that is a project for a debut author. It is so hard to get one really good authorial voice, let alone like multiple in the same book. So Especially I think- in the first person, because they said three first person yes, POVs. Exactly. 
probably the hardest thing to pull off. So yeah. Yes, it's a lot. So in that way, I found myself a little disappointed with the writing sample because we only got one of the points of view. And so actually, if I scroll down, we do get a little bit of a second one, but it's quite short right at the end. So I mean, in some ways, that's like sort of a challenge of the project in general. The author also never told me what like the sample is there, but it doesn't say like what point of the book it's from. So I was assuming when I read it that it was the very beginning, but like it's it's not possible to actually know. So I would say to be like very specific, first of all, about like where you're, where in the book this writing sample comes in. It's also, I mean, it's so hard to do, but if you're able to include like at least a couple of the POVs so that the reader can get a sense of like, not necessarily the POV, like the character themselves, but like that you can switch between POVs. I think that that's really important. And I didn't really get that sense through here just because it was a lot, like there's a lot going on. So it's tricky. It's a really tricky one. I think that the author has given themselves a lot of challenges here. So I'm definitely not criticizing the author at all. I think they've just taken on a really challenging project. And the one thing, the last thing I'll say is that 110,000 words is very long for a debut novel. And that might be, I think that having read the query letter and kind of chopped that one down, I think that it might be worth it to go through and take out the extra 10,000 words. I'm a huge stickler for staying under 100,000 words. And people ask me why all the time. And it's not because I don't love big books because I totally do. But when you're a debut author, so 100,000 words works out to be a 400 page hardback novel. And cost wise, that is a huge risk for a publisher to take for an unproven author. So I'm not saying that you should never query a novel longer than that as a debut author, but I'm saying you are setting yourself up for like a higher bar of performance if you do, because either your editor is going to expect you to cut it down, which leans a lot on your editorial skills, or they're going to expect you to like really wow them because they're going to have to charge like 37 to $40 (laughs) in Canada, at least for that hardback book. And like a reader is going to want like a really, really good book if they're going to spend big money like that. So it can be a big challenge for a new author. So before we move on to the next one, a question there is Mm -hmm. because most of the time on the podcast, we say just submit the first five pages of the novel. So how you let the agent know where it's from is you just head it, you have a head chapter one, right? And then, but how about if they wanted to show you each of their POV voices so that you Mm -hmm. could know that they could really do them well? So would they include page one from chapter one, page one from chapter two, page one from chapter three, if those are alternating POVs? Yeah. Is that not going to confuse you as an agent? What I would probably suggest is, because for me, I just want to make sure that you can switch between POVs, if that makes sense. Like, I don't need to see every POV, but I need to know that, like, this one voice that we're getting isn't going to be the same voice for all the characters. So what I would probably do is, like, include the the beginning pages, and then once that's like finished, like if you've done your five pages or your chapter or whatever it is that the agent wants afterward, I would just include like an excerpt from like the beginning of whatever chapter has the next voice in it and put in brackets like chapter two, like obviously indicate which POV we're getting. And maybe like just put a little note in your query letter. Like I've also included, you know, a sample of the second POV or something like that, just so that it's like, you know, the reader has context, but I don't think it needs to be like a massive sample. I think it's just like one page just to show like, look, I, I can totally actually execute this, you know, I think that would be the biggest help for this one. Wonderful. All right, yeah. let's move on to that third query later. Yeah. So the third one is from Christina Frigo, I believe is the last name. And I'll just go ahead and read it. It's it's like a 
good reasonable length here. So it says, in the few weeks since I discovered your podcast, I've binged an embarrassing number of your episodes. I love the author interviews and I'm so appreciative of your practical advice during the Books with Hooks segment each week. Bianca, I'm especially grateful to you for setting up the critique groups as mine has already proven to be indispensable. Yay, I love that. I hope you'll consider critiquing my query. I've written a 40,000 word middle grade near historical novel titled The Whale of Lori Lake. It shares the theme of sisterhood rivalry and small town mystery with Jacqueline West's Long Lost and would be perfect for fans of Amy Rebecca Tan's A King of Paradise. Can I just say that those are like, that is the perfect way to lay out your comps. I was already, I was like, this is great. You know exactly what I'm looking for here. 13 year old Amber Caruso has just decided that the cure for her insecurities and her recent fighting with her twin sister, Katie, is a boyfriend. When her mom sentences the feuding twins to a summer trapped in their grandparents' tiny lake town, Amber is convinced that the summer of 1999 will be her worst yet. She's sure there's no way to get a boyfriend in the middle of nowhere until she meets Hunter. Hunter is cute and fun and Amber immediately falls for him, but Katie doesn't trust Hunter. Amber chalks it up to jealousy and brushes her sister's concerns aside. Through Hunter, Amber sees Lori Lake as more than just a dull lake town filled with horse flies as she navigates local secrets about a stolen boat, a dead sister, and the town's long-held myth of a whale living in the lake. Along the way, Hunter and Amber hunt for crayfish, enjoy a boat ride, and share a first kiss. But Katie claims that Hunter has a secret of his own. He's got a crush on her too. When Hunter denies it, Amber isn't sure who to believe. She must choose what's more important, her relationship with her sister or her first real boyfriend, before summer ends and she's alone and insecure again. I hold an MFA in creative writing from the University of Miami, where I was a James A. Mishner Fellow in Fiction. My writing has appeared in, there's like a nice list there, and elsewhere. Earlier this year, my adult novella manuscript was a semifinalist for the Big Moose Prize at Black Lawrence Press. I live in town, where I'm an associate editor at a small press. Thank you for your time and consideration. So I thought this one was great. There's some really good stuff going on in there. The only thing, I I almost felt like I wanted to pick this one apart on more of like a line level than I did with the others because it's getting like quite close to perfect. And so I did like a little bit of trimming in terms of just like, I think there are some phrases in there that are just a lot that we don't really need. Um, because again, we've got like, it's a, it's only a 40,000 word book and there's two like big paragraphs of plot summary, um, which I think can be a little bit more efficient. But I think other than that trim, that's probably fine. The only thing I would say is that there are a little bit of a few like grammatical kind of things in here. One of my like pet peeves is when people start a lot of sentences with coordinating conjunctions. So words like, but, and. And then I thought, I think it's totally fine to do that in dialogue and occasionally stylistically, I get it, especially if you're writing for children or if you're writing in like kind of a voicier genre. So like a lot of young adult is written in a sort of conversational style, a lot of romance as well. I will say though, there is something to be said for the fact that, you know, we send in our manuscripts to editors. Usually, I mean, I send them in both doc, like docx, like word format and in PDF. And a lot of people like them in word format so that they can adjust, you know, the font size or whatever it is that they need to be comfortable reading because people read like on e-readers or on a computer screen or whatever. And Word will underline every single one of those words, right? It'll identify it as being a sentence fragment every time. So for me, it's really distracting when I'm sending in submissions and I'm like, all that editors are going to see is the copy editing that needs to be done here. So especially in the query letter, I would say like as much as possible to make your grammar like word perfect. So that like when an editor or an agent is looking at it, there are no typos or spelling mistakes that are like at least being automatically kind of highlighted for you. Well, and especially when it comes to pet peeves. So this person yes. has has their MFA. So we know they know how mm-hmm. to write. And totally. often writers break the rules once they've mastered the rules. hundred percent. Which is completely fine if it works like Emmy says in the, in the actual book. But if it's a pet peeve for that editor or for that agent, you don't want to be kind of 
poking at their buttons and annoying them yeah. while they, they're trying to get past that. Okay. Especially awesome. in the query letter. Like the sample is one thing because you can see it in context and how it's being used, but the letter itself, like you're not fully an authorial voice in there. So like just as clean and perfect as you can make it. And I know that not everyone, you know, everybody enters this process like at a different level, but especially if you have an MFA, like you probably have a few friends who could give you like a proofread just to sort of like pick out those little weaknesses. But otherwise I thought it was super great. It's definitely a compelling story. 40,000 words is like a little on the short side for middle grade. So I think that there's like a little bit of room to grow there in terms of the book itself. And then I also sort of questioned why it was said in 1999. This seems to be a trend that I'm seeing in queries lately. And it's not one that I think is serving people super well to do this like near historical thing where especially like, I mean, like I get it. I grew up in the nineties. I have lots of like nostalgic nineties feels. I always do. My house is very neon. I have a lot of scrunchies, you know, but when I think that we forget sometimes that the readers who these books are targeting did not grow up in the nineties, right? They don't have those nostalgic feels. So either if it doesn't serve a purpose for your book, just set it in contemporary times because it will be much more relatable to the reader or set it further back so that, you know, you really get like a historical kind of aspect or theme that you can pull out. Like I know that I've, uh, there have been a couple of books that have come out that have been set in like the seventies and deal with kind of, you know, like the historical, like near historical roots of kind of like racism or homophobia or whatever. Those kinds of things I think are interesting, but I didn't get a chance to read enough in the sample to know whether the 1999 setting like really comes alive or whether it's just sort of where the author was most comfortable, if that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably find the author feels nostalgic for that time and that's where they feel most comfortable. So that's the natural setting that they then chose. Totally. And I totally get it. Also, like there, this sounds like it's trying to be like a, like a middle grade kind of thriller or like kind of like our YA thrillers are doing now, which I love. I think that's such a great, I think it's so great because we haven't really seen a ton of genre in middle grade. I think that's awesome. And setting it in 1999 means there's no cell phones. So I always wonder if that's why people have kind of gone that route is to avoid the issue of, I know that integrating technology into children's lit is like really, really hard. So I'm like, is that why, like, are you just being like trying to find a clever way out of that? Like, it, it just makes me wonder. So I would, want to read more the sample was great like the I think that the first page definitely needs a little bit of work in just in the sense of like cramming information in there. Um, we don't get a lot of details about like what's actually going to happen in the book, um, but we do get a good sense of the voice and the character. And I think that that's like, it's definitely a strong, like middle grade voicey accessible. The reading level is great. Middle grade is, I think, one of the hardest to nail that way in terms of not sounding patronizing toward the reader, but also sounding kind of conversational enough. Like you don't want it to be too... I don't know, like off trend in the sense that like you don't want it to sound too literary, but you also don't want it to sound too childish. So it's really, really difficult. And I think that the author's done a really good job of that. So I would say that it's just a matter of kind of like taking those facts that we get like in the query letter and later in the writing sample, like dragging them up. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words. So you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Before we go to today's guest, this is just a reminder that we've got the virtual retreat coming up in January, the last weekend of January, and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services, and retreats tab, and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that again look at the website biancamaray.com and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter. Today's guest was born in South Carolina. His first book When You Find Me was published in 2018. He lives in Calgary with his partner and two wily dogs and he's the author of Bathhouse which came out this year. It's my pleasure to welcome PJ Vernon. 
PJ, welcome to the show. What a joy to get to chat to you today. I absolutely devoured Bathhouse. I finished it in like two days. And I know readers mean this as a compliment when they tell authors this, but we kind of freak out because we like, it took me five years to write this and you read it in two days. But it was such a page turner and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that high praise and thank you for having me on. I have been looking forward to, to hanging out and it's great to, to meet you. And yeah, excited. Lots of stuff to to get into and talk about for sure. Yes, absolutely. So firstly, how long did it take you to write after I devoured it in two days? <laughs> it, well, you know, I, I think I, if I remember correctly, I finished um, a, a first really shitty draft um, of Bathhouse maybe over the course of like a, a few months um, in the summer of, of 2017, I believe, if that gives you any like timeline as far as like how long it took from conception to, to uh, being out on shelves. Um, of course, recognizing that we had to, you know, sort of look for a different publisher um, during that period as well. So um, a little bit longer on that front. But yeah, it's as you were saying that in your uh, introduction, it reminded me of, you know, just in general, how much work we put as writers into this stuff. And, it, it, you know, we'll write a scene and just basically bleed out onto the page just so, you know, someone can pluck it off of a supermarket shelf and, and say, oh, that was a great chapter. I'll just keep going. Yeah. Somebody the other day was writing on Twitter that they said every time they feel bad about breaking their book buying ban, because, you know, for people whose TV read lists are huge, they tell themselves, I'm not going to buy any new books, so I'm going to just read the ones I have. And they said, you know, to make themselves feel better about that, they remind themselves that every time they buy a book, they are buying two to five years of the author's life for just $26. And that really does put it into perspective. That's an incredible, I had, I I mean, I guess I knew that in my heart, but certainly hearing you say that and articulate it, it's a little jarring. Um, and I think there's a whole conversation that we could have around, um, you know, how the value of, of art, certainly. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, that's a bargain. <laughs> I, I think so. So every time now I give myself a hard time for buying new books, I'm just like, nope, 26 or $35, whatever it is for five years of that author's life. Because PJ said he read it, he wrote it over a few months, but that's like the first shitty draft. Then there were the multiple rewrites and the tweaking. And then it's editing with an editor at a publishing house. And then it's copy editing and proofreading. And then after that, you need to be doing all the publicity and you need to be promoting the book and you're talking to book clubs and all of those things. So it is easily two to five years of an author's life that you are getting for your $26. Absolutely. And and also, you know, a bargain on that front, but also in what the reader is getting. You know, you might be getting, you know, in some speculative titles, hundreds of years of other folks' lives or, you know, a, a very, like Bathhouse, a very high intensity week or so, you know, in someone else's life. There's nothing beats it. Yeah, absolutely. So you were saying you had to change publishers in that process. So your first novel that came out... When You Find Me. So that was, was that with a different publisher to Bathhouse? And is it because you suddenly went to gay domestic suspense that you had to find a different publisher? Or how did that work? Yeah, no, and that's a, that's a great question. And I think it, for folks tuning in, it's I always love being as candid as possible um, when it comes to this stuff, because how the hell else are any of us supposed to um, have points of reference or, or learn and and yeah, so my first day, uh, my uh, first book, my debut, When You Find Me, was very much a Southern Gothic um, suspense. I'm from South Carolina originally, although I um, am calling in from Canada, um, where I live now. But early days was was quite afraid to center a um, any kind of novel on uh, a gay character or a queer couple, and so I didn't. I uh, 
found a home for, for that book, um, which it, it's a terrific book and a, a terrific team. I, my editor um, w- did a fabulous job, work both, you know, seeing the value in the project and, and sharpening it and polishing it. But, you know, at when it was time to, to bring the next book forward, and I had a book called Bathhouse, which, you know, it's, as you know, you know, we're not talking about any sort of erotic, you know, erotica, although if for no other reason, I couldn't write something like that successfully. <laughs> I've got friends that, that certainly do, but I think it, it frightened some of the gatekeeper folks who were worried that, you know, quote unquote, mainstream readers might not be able to connect with a story like Oliver and Nathan's and Bathhouse when in all actuality, it's like any other um, suspense book you could you could find on the shelf. And so that less than enthusiastic response, of course, gave us myself and my agent um, a choice, right? You know, we either write something else or, or we take this other project that we both believe in. Um, and that's very important to, to both of us and, and try to find a home. And we got really fortunate in finding a home with Doubleday, who um, put incredible resources behind us and, and really, for me personally, showed me reminded me that readers really just care about a good story and that's literally it. And if you can deliver that, then it doesn't, you know, everything else kind of falls to the background. And and that was a very encouraging and heartening reminder uh, when Bathhouse was released. Yeah. And I love that you said that firstly, because of, you know, the gatekeepers, because, you know, on the podcast, we talk all the time about editors like this and editors don't like this. And at the moment, they don't want to hear COVID stories, but that may change down the line. And so as writers, we tend to jump through hoops to try and write things that are going to make other people happy and that are going to get us through these gatekeepers. But at the same time, if you like PJ have a book that you feel really passionately about and maybe some gatekeepers aren't going to get it that doesn't mean there aren't going to be others out there who will and who who won't potentially take a chance on on this thing that you've done and and clearly this was a, a passion project for you and it's so refreshing to see you know because I I love um, domestic suspense thrillers I read a ton of them but they're all straight people which tends to be incredibly boring uh, and this was really interesting and and like you say a good story well told it didn't matter that the characters were gay for me it gave it a hook it made it more interesting to me than wanting to pick up another straight couple with a messed up relationship and and for me this was the hook and, and it made me even more interested in the book but how wonderful that you were able to write the book you wanted to write and find somebody who believed in yes and thank you and I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up and I would I would say um for you know folks tuning in when we talk about gatekeepers and trends and all these kinds of things one of the things and and everyone should take what I say with a giant grain of salt as well because I'm an in of one I have survivor bias there's a billion pathways to your dream um, and if writing a book is is that dream certainly the same thing is true there but what I found personally is a lot of gatekeepers a lot of rules a lot of rules we authors love to tell ourselves and, and propagate to to each other I just haven't found have been the case or true and it's not so you know I personally found it's not so much that these gatekeepers have some sort of prescient ability to uh, appreciate oh everyone's gonna love vampires next year so let's get tons of vampires everyone's gonna love this I you know I find there are certainly those those folks and I've got to shout out both my agent um, Chris Bucci and editor a double day Rob Bloom for, for very much having that innovative sort of entrepreneurial risk-taking um, mindset which which I think is responsible for a lot of these trends but what I find um, a lot of times you know speaking with colleagues friends and personal experience is a lot of people who are afraid um, so it's not so much that you know they don't they don't see value in a book called Bathhouse or so many other titles that are are creating splashy, lots of conversation, cultural conversations. It's it feels less safe 
you know, to, to do something like that. And so it's almost like this low risk, low reward mentality that we're all as authors, we all get it. We're like, that's ridiculous. No, we're readers too. We don't want to constantly be reading the same iteration of everything, but there's some sort of disconnect. And so it's, it's nice to see the proof kind of in the outcomes of, of these sorts of things. So, so trust your gut above what anyone, I remember when uh, the 2016 election happened and everyone was saying, we only want speculative, lovely things. You know, we want your high fantasies where, you know, the, the hero and uh, wins and all those kinds of stories, which I love as well. But when I um, was experiencing the, you know, for me, the trauma of all of that, I wanted to read more dark fiction. That's where I went for catharsis because these were dark stories and dark worlds in which, you know, an author was in control and I knew the story would have to make sense at the end and, and come together. And so I'm like, if I feel this way, why are all these people who know better than me telling us that we don't? And so trust your gut, your writers are readers too. <laughs> We've yeah, got good taste. Hundred percent. And I I know that during the pandemic I went back to an old favorite of mine, Station Eleven. And people were like, Why the hell are you reading a pandemic book during a pandemic? And I was like, This is to remind me how much worse shit can be, man. In Station Eleven, 95% of us all die from the pandemic. And this kind of reminds me that this is not so bad that we have to stay inside. And Gothic Noir was doing really well. I started reading much darker stuff than I've ever read before. So I hundred percent agree with you there. And those of you who listen to the podcast will hear CC, who often talks about high risk, high reward. And that is against what PJ was saying about low risk, low reward. So to talk about Bathhouse specifically, so just a bit of an overview for our listeners. We have Oliver Park. He's a recovering addict from Indiana. And he has everything he wants, you know, that he thinks he wants with this partner of his, who's Dr. Nathan Klein, a prominent Washington, D.C. trauma surgeon. Oliver's now, he's recovered, he's in recovery, he's sober. And they, from the outside, they seem to have this really, really amazing, loving, wonderful relationship. And he has this financial security. There's a big age difference between them and obviously big socioeconomic difference between them. But it seems to work regardless. And yet, despite this, we see Oliver go to a gay bathhouse and he's doing this on the sly. He doesn't want his partner to know. And then something terrible happens there. And it all kind of spirals out of control. Dun, dun, dun. Because he can't let his partner know about this thing that he did. And it was just wonderful page turner. And so, PJ, you wrote this from, and I've got to be careful how I say this, because my accent ruins it for my listeners. A dual, dual POV, not dual not like jewelry people, dual POV in first person. So we get Oliver's perspective and we get Nathan's perspective. So was that always how the novel was going to be structured? Because writing two men, even though they're quite different, from first person is extremely challenging in terms of differentiating the voice. So how did you approach that? That you, I mean, that's understatement for me um, of a lifetime. I, when I read books with, you know, eight points of view in any tense, certainly first person is, is its own barrel of challenges. I am just amazed because I struggle so hard to keep two voices in my head. Um, at the same time, I, I kind of cheated a little bit when it comes, not really cheated, but went about it a little bit differently because of circumstances with Bathhouse. I mentioned earlier that we, you know, kind of were uh, in this delayed period while we were finding other publishers or, or waiting for contract terms to sort of lapse. And what that meant was 
my original draft, which was, you know, it's very much Oliver's story. Um, and it was, it was just Oliver's point of view to, to begin with, um, because, you know, again, struggle to keep those, those two voices in my head. I had all of this time to sort of think through how to make the story better. How can we level it up? You know, stories, I, a friend, I, I don't know if this is a quote from someone else that my friend told me, but, you know, folks say um, stories are never finished. They're, you know, only abandoned. So it was like, I, I'm not, I don't have to abandon it quite yet. Um, and I had some conversations with a couple of different editors who were interested in the project, including um, the one who would go on to eventually acquire it. And, you know, I was thinking through how, how we could make this story pop. I always try to write scenes from the point of view of whoever has the most to lose or a range scene so that the person with the most at stake is, is centered and that their conflict is centered. And I thought to myself, you know, in so many of these instances, Nathan has just as much, if not more to lose than Oliver, depending on where you find yourself in the story. And so when I started to write Nathan's chapters, it had just literally so much time had passed since I wrote um, Oliver's that like, you know, my storytelling had evolved and changed. Um, so it was a little bit easier in that regard to, to get a, a fresh new voice on the page. But when I did, it certainly, it brought things, I won't spoil anything at all, but it, it, it created a different kind of dynamic and a different kind of central um, conflict, which was a real strength to the story. People's motivations change for the better, certainly. But, but don't do that. I mean, if you want to, if you want to wait years to get that next voice, go for it. Um, I, I did that by accident. It was out of my control. <laughs> It was a wonderful accident. You did it wonderfully well accidentally. And, you know, here's the thing for our listeners. So when listeners consume this kind of story on audiobook, it's easy for them because they've got two different voices for the characters. And so they're like, oh, I'm with Oliver now. Oh, I'm with Nathan. But when they're reading it, you know, you have to differentiate it on the page. And PJ made it easy. He put those stamps. So we always knew who was speaking when the chapters changed, etc. But still, the voices were different enough and and what he said about the high stakes character being the one who narrates a particular scene that's also um, incredibly important and what I loved about this is that I, I won't necessarily say unreliable narrators but certainly there was a hint of unreliability from each of their stories which you do so well in first person because it's that person's perception of things it's their perspective we lie to ourselves as much as we lie to other people um, and so you know that was great in coming through on on the page as well so I really loved that let's talk about the structure of the novel so you did something really really interesting is that you structured it in terms of five different parts. So at the beginning of the book, there's this page, it says asphyxia, and then it's a definition, a lack of oxygen and excess of carbon dioxide in the body that results in unconsciousness and within four to six minutes death. And it says clinical asphyxia is divided into five stages. And then it's the first part one says surprise respiration. When danger is recognized, a deep and forceful inhalation occurs. And throughout the novel, we see those five stages and the novel is separated into that. Was that always something you were going to do? Is that something that evolved with time? Tell us about that really unique take on structure. Yeah, thank you for that. I, um, I'm i obsessed. I have just this like fixation on structure, how books are constructed, the different kinds of ways folks play with form. I think during that revision process, you know, when so much, I, again, when we said like the first draft of Bathhouse, so shitty. So, you know, I think it was like maybe 30 or 40,000 words less than, you know, what what folks are able to uh, to read today. But so much work goes into that, that 
part, including for me, how I wanted to structure this book, how um, I write for other people, but it's too hard if you don't get something out of it too. And, you know, again, I I just think it's cool. I love books that are um, organized around, you know, dinner parties and there's like the appetizer and, you know, the the, uh, meal, the dessert, and it corresponds with what's happening on the page or books within books. Um, plays within plays, those kinds of things. And so, you know, I thought, you know, asphyxia is something certainly that's um, both metaphorically and quite literally threaded throughout the book. Um, And also how I hope, you know, readers feel. As a voracious reader of thrillers myself, that's what I go there for, is to feel that asphyxia and the entertainment payoff when when you escape it and everything kind of comes together. And so it just, it felt natural. I have a background in in medicine. I was an immunologist in a past life. And so, you know, the body and, and physiological processes are always very interesting to me. So it felt like a good fit. I wish I had a smarter answer rather than it sounded cool. And I also wanted readers to feel like they were struggling to breathe a little bit. Uh, it really was cool. It worked really well. Um, that answers one of my questions is when you say that medical background, because I was like, it really feels like this author has a medical background. So that answers that question. Have you read Anthony Dewar's Cloud Cuckoo Land yet? I have not. Mm-mm. Oh, my goodness. If you want to see a book within a book within a book and crazy art structure like you've never seen and how the payoff of that comes together, I think we have like eight points of view, seven or eight points of view characters. It is a monster of a book. It's, um, I think it's already been shortlisted for all kinds of prizes, but you will love that book. So definitely add that to your list. And for our listeners who are writing multiple um, POV novels, uh, multiple timeline novels. I mean, some of that starts off in, it's like the 1100s, I think. And and then we have present day. And then we, I don't know how many hundred years in the future as well. So great way to to play around with, with structure. In terms of your plotting, because this is a novel that has so many twists and turns. There's the red herrings, etc. cetera. Um, when you are planning a book in terms of the structure, do you approach it instinctively in that at certain parts of the story, you know, oh, I need the stakes to be higher here. Oh, I need a bit of a twist here. Or do you sit with something like Save the Cat story beats and work it out sort of formulaically ahead of time? Or how do you approach that? Yeah, I would say it's probably a combination Um, of everything. Although like the classical question of, you know, do you pants or plot your way through the stories? I'm certainly much more um, of a pantser. So I I kind of have waypoints um, that I know I want to hit. I know oftentimes who done it and, you know, which red herrings and in what order they'll escalate. And so there is an intentionality um, behind some, a lot of it, but at least in the drafting phase when I'm all about just like, you know, writing first and getting into trouble later and sacrificing nothing for the story, including, you know, the laws of (laughs) space time and physics and research and anything else. I, I, you know, I just, it it is a little instinctive. Um, So to use Bathhouse as an example, um, and early on in the book, so it's it's certainly not a spoiler, it opens with the main character, Oliver, you know, trying to cheat and being almost strangled to death in a bathhouse for it. That is an extraordinary amount of physical danger. And it sort of sets a metric for for the book as to what counts as dangerous. You know, in some books that we read, the most dangerous thing that can happen is, you know, you don't fall in love with the person that you're meant to fall in love with, or you don't go, you you get fired. Um, of course, in thrillers, and you know, it's oftentimes life or death. But how the hell do you keep a reader 
going, you know, after, in, you know, chapter two, where you're like, phew, thankfully we got out of that. Um, and so that gets into that instinctive sort of storytelling and, okay, we need bridging conflict. Something's got to happen. Let's flood the bathroom. Let's flood, you know, let's do all this stuff to kind of keep every, keep that tension pulsing uh, until we get to that sort of next waypoint. And then the last thing I'll sort of say is a lot of those waypoints are also just because I think they'll be cool. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I want to do a fight in an elevator. Let's figure out how we'll make that happen or, you know, those kinds of things so combination love it um yeah we've spoken about this on the podcast for our listeners is when you start with something huge like something that's high stakes you then have to keep upping the stakes from there the tension has to keep mounting from there so you can't begin with something huge and then everything after that is this deflation or de-escalation of that so it's really risky to start a novel with something that's an attack where the character almost dies because everything that comes after that has really got to keep upping that and something that I found super interesting when reading this book because when I love a book I force it on everyone I know um, and I, I was with a, a friend on vacation recently and I forced him to read it and I made another friend read it and what was interesting is that I found my gay friends kind of judged Oliver harshly in the beginning for him going to the bathhouse and as a straight woman I was like no I don't have a problem with it it's not a problem and so it's interesting how different characters land differently with different readers like some are immediately judgy and they're like oh hell no he's doing this bad thing so something bad must happen to him and someone else is like no you know this is the thing he needs and whatever he's not hurting anyone so have you had any interaction yet with book clubs because this is something as writers we have to do um and are they liking or not liking your characters how's that landing yeah I think I that's a great question and I've had a I've been lucky enough um, to be in, in plenty of book clubs and having conversations, you know, about these books. And I, I couldn't agree with you more, you know, it's, it's, and, and for writers out there, you know, trying to write for trends or write for someone else, if you love something and if you love a kind of character and a kind of plot, someone else loves it too. And that, that kind that person's your reader and someone else doesn't. And, and, you know, they're, they're not your reader and, you know, there are other books out there for them. For me, my jam as a reader are people who make, who behave badly or are misguided or are for all intents and purposes being extraordinarily human. They're not communicating um, what they should be communicating um, or certainly not effectively. They think they want things they, they really don't want or need and they have to learn that the hard way. And to me, those are the characters that resonate. Those are the characters that I'm going to write. And I think when it comes to my readers and, and by the time I get to, you know, these book clubs, these are folks who have for the most part read it and loved it. You know, we, we can talk about the subject matter that's really interesting to me, which is, you know, why is he in there trying to cheat or, you know, does he deserve to to die for it or you know as opposed to the sort of blanket judgment that's sort of in the story right there well if Oliver deserves to die for cheating then why would we <laughs> keep keep reading and that's a totally valid uh, take on the story as well it's just not their jam and not you know my sort of reader but I would say 99% of, of at least the feedback that I see or get tagged in at least um, you know is, is overwhelmingly positive because people are frustrated with Oliver they're you know they want to scream at Oliver just like we all do when we see our friends or loved ones that they're dealing with challenges that we have the easy answers for. And we're like, you should just totally, if you just said this, this would, it would uh, pan out differently. That's not realistic. And that's not reflective of, of, you know, the world I live in. And so that's what I'm most interested in capturing. But to, to the other point about, you know, how it lands differently with, with different communities, that's been fascinating as well. Not just to see, you know, uh, how, you know, queer folks, 
receive the story or, or how it resonates with them versus, you know, other people from other communities, but also generationally, because so much has changed within the queer community over such a tiny amount of time. I talk to, to younger queer folks today who are confused by the fact that, you know, I use the word queer because it's a label and, you know, all that stuff is amazing, but it's, it's change, right? Yeah, but it, it opens up conversations and that's absolutely what you want with your art. You want people to be talking about it. And the great thing is no matter any of my friends, it didn't matter how they judged Oliver or how they judged Nathan or whether they were frustrated or not. They just kept turning the damn pages, which proves time and again that you don't need to have per se a likable character. Readers want to connect with someone vulnerable. They want to connect with someone, like PJ said, who's making mistakes, who's deeply human. And that's something to keep in mind for your works in progress, where perhaps your narrators are not, you know, the most likable, perhaps, but there's certainly ways to make them vulnerable and interesting to the reader so that they keep turning those pages. PJ, with the end of our time, our half an hour is up. I don't know how the time flew by like this. I know you'll be working on something new, and I'm hoping that when that comes out, we will we'll get to chat to you as well. For our listeners, you absolutely have to get Bathhouse, not just for thriller readers, for anybody who wants to see pacing, tension, you know, well-rounded characters, a really interesting structure. You know, we learn through reading really good writers who've done really well at their craft. And so this book is a masterclass in a whole bunch of, of, of different elements of craft. So definitely go out and get that. Oh my Thank gosh. You, Thank you so much. That means the world. And thank you to all of your listeners. And I hope I can't wait to read all of their unlikable, unreliable <laughs> characters because I'm your reader. <laughs> and that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. 
It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.